0: as barheads, Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this privilege, this tremendous honor even, to gather together in your Son's good name, to call ourselves members and children of your family, members of one another even in the body of your Son. What a fantastic situation we have here on a little hill in North Dighton, Massachusetts. Thank you for keeping the doors of this blessed church open and thank you for all the spiritual gifts that are empowered directly by you and your spirit to keep a ministry like this alive and and powerful even in the midst of so much adversity. Father, thank you for giving us this time and thank you for your patience while we learn what true humility looks like. And We exercise it in time to your glory. Father, we pray for those that are still ill in the congregation, but most of all, those that are ill in a way that's kept them separated from eternal life, from you. We pray for those that are still unsaved and that you humble them, whatever means necessary, before it's too late. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to make a morning like this even a reality for all of us. We just pray for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, why all the complexity? Um, An interesting choice of words. Um, But before I get into that, I want to share an email I received after Thursday's message, which was part one of why all the complexity and chaos, Uh, this is from none other than Deacon Johnson's beloved wife, my sister Kathy, I just want to say thank you, and most of you know that she had just fallen down the stairs, she just got out of the hospital and then she fell down the stairs and, you know, busted herself up and this kind of a thing, and She was listening to Thursday's message live, and this is what I got Thursday evening, late. I just want to say thank you so much, Pastor, for a fantastic message tonight and for making them live and accessible to all of us who are unable to make it for whatever reason. These messages are like gold to us. It's so hard sometimes not to be able to be there in person and be able to fellowship but at least we are able to be a part of a live message, which is an incredible gift. I hope that we all remember the tremendous gift face-to-face teaching is. There are so many people that would do anything to have the gift of face-to-face teaching. The Word of God is the best gift we could ever receive. So thanks to you and all those behind the scenes who make this available to us. Love to all, Kathy Johnson. And that's awesome because it's just a breath of fresh air. It's really uh, disheartening sometimes to, you know, I mean, let me let me put it this way. It's a, it is a wonderful perspective from a person who's life often precludes her from attending face-to-face teaching. And it's interesting because, in the meanwhile, I've got to spend some portion of my time, like I have recently, contemplating who in my congregation needs to be removed from our membership role. That's not really a thought process that any shepherd wants to go through it'd be really nice to think that nobody would ever want to leave or whatever. And when I say leave, it's by virtue of their activity or lack thereof. I got, on one hand, someone who's legitimately hurt and injured, who would like nothing more than to be here. And then I've got perfectly healthy people who have no legitimate reason and just decide, eh, I'm not going to show up, I'm not going to partake in what I have vowed before the Lord to take, which is a membership in this local assembly. I almost read some of the bylaws this morning, just so as a refresher course, for those of you who have said, I want to be a member, well this is what it means to actually be a member. And one of the things is to make every effort possible to be here. For the Bible says, do not forsake assembling together like so many do, for the sake of encouragement. That's part of what it means to be a member of a family. Not to mention all the other stuff, like supporting, not just financially, but absolutely financially. These lights are on because someone's been faithful. We have heat and air conditioning. It's pretty comfortable in here, isn't it? Somebody paid those bills. One individual alone took care of the majority of the propane. One person in here. That's what it means to be a member. I mean, you're a member of the family. So it's it's refreshing In one sense, but it also, you know, as a shepherd, it always sets me back on my heels and says, geez, I just wish everybody had this kind of attitude. And I just think people get familiar. So, anyways, I've got to spend that time, and the reasons for such thinking um, is directly related. I was thinking about why would someone take the time to write that? And it is directly related to this morning's message title, which is Why All the Complexity and Chaos. And that's a really good question because it gets us to stop and think about why such things even exist in our lives. I mean, what is taking people away from fellowshipping this way? I mean, what is it that motivates your pastor to say, this is my favorite time of the week. And for some other person who's supposedly a member of the congregation, they don't even get out of bed. Because their life is so chaotic. Or complex. Well, I've got so much going on, you see. I just, I can't seem to make it to class. For real? You have so much going on that you can't make it to class? That's a lie. Just come out and tell the truth. It's a choice you're making. It is a choice that you are making. And I always say, my kids hate when I do this, but it's true, right? If there was a million dollars in your seat, every time you showed up, you would be here every time the church, you'd probably be waiting at the door. Are you open yet? Okay, now that's not gonna happen, so just settle down, right? But the point is, it establishes one thing very clearly. It's just a matter of priorities. It's just a matter, if it was a priority, you would be here. So, at least say that to yourself. You don't even have to admit it to me. At least say that to yourself. So, anyways, it's a really good question because it makes us stop and think about why complexity and chaos is even in our lives. We being children of the one who the Bible describes as not a God of confusion, but of peace. 1 Corinthians 14.33, It's amazing how often we might shake our heads in astonishment if we just stopped and asked ourselves a simple recurring question. What am I doing? Like, we might be astonished. What am I doing right now? And the follow-up to that question is, why am I miserable when God loves me so much that He gave me the risen Lord? Hmm. Well, the Spirit's been taking us down this rabbit hole lately, and it all began with a series titled, The Power of Deception, and then continued with a series titled, Are You Ready? And now on to Why All the Complexity and Chaos. The very serious question is, why am I anything but at peace at all times in my life? Why am I anything but at peace at all times in my life? That's sort of the probing question. It's not why all the complexity and chaos. Most of you say, oh, the world's crazy. Yeah, but why are you ever not at peace? Why are you malcontent with life itself to the point where you can't do something, like I just said, as simple as gathering together with your family? What is it? So we began on Thursday with this, living in deception, well that's definitely part of it, the deeper the hole, the longer it may take to crawl out of it. With God, all things are possible, but there's no guarantee that deliverance will be instantaneous. In fact, God may want the process to take time. In other words, this concept of personal readiness that we studied in greater detail in that series, Are You Ready? This concept of personal readiness that we studied becomes front and center. There's always the very real possibility that God himself... Is purposely holding back the faith that would deliver you. Why? Well, frankly, God only knows. I'm not going to speculate in your life. I have ideas about my own. Usually it's like, you know, 20, 20 hindsight. But we try to get in front of the curve, and I think that's what wisdom does. But God only knows in your life. Um, but the saving grace is that we do know that He does everything for a reason. That's fair to say. So if he's holding back uh, a certain deliverance in your life, it's for a reason. And for those who love him, he does work out all things for good. That's Romans 8.28. So he might have a plan for you and there might be certain things that you have to go through before you're fully delivered, so to speak. So he pondered the point on the board. Next, we considered some additional related perspective up here in the board why the complexity? Well, just to set the record straight, God, from God's viewpoint, life is quite simple and straightforward because he's immutable. In other words, it's, it's God's God. He never changes. That's all immutability means. It just means he never changes. Mal- Malachi 3.6, Hebrews 6.13, 13.8, James 1.17, et etc. Cetera, et cetera. More than ample scripture to support that. Life is complex, though, from man's viewpoint, because he has a flesh that is antagonistic to God, the one who never changes, and therefore really good at creating chaos. So God's the absolute pillar of stability. Any, the further we get away from God and his viewpoint, the more chaotic life gets. And the flesh wants to run away from God because it's antagonistic to God, almost like opposing magnets, right? And so it makes sense that... When we run away from God, chaos enters in. Again, just so you're convinced about the first point, Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And then secondly, of course, why all the complexity to the second point? Man makes it that way in his own way. Proverbs 1 or 11.14 reads this way, Where there is no guidance, the people fall, but in abundance of counselors, there is victory. Well, here's our guidance. What we quickly realized during our study on Thursday is that complexity and chaos are, for lack of a better term, derivatives of sin. Derivatives of sin. We are prone to such things being affected by the power of sin, even as believers. Even as believers, I mean, we we all carry on a flesh that really is, truth be told, antagonistic to God. And whenever we let the flesh take over, AKA we sin. Chaos enters, confusion enters, pain and suffering and and malcontent, and anxiety, and worry, and blah, blah, and the list goes on. Because that's what sin specializes in. That's the power of sin. The power of sin is to take you away from God, the pillar of stability. So the surefire way to cast instability in your life is to start casting off the grace of God. All the ways that He's provided for you to come to Him. Starting with prayer. Now, wouldn't one think that just knowing, just knowing that sin is the culprit, a person wouldn't ever sin again? <laughs> Isn't that like the you know what I'm saying? Hey, look, if you you know, if you if you go like this, it falls off. And you don't want it to fall off, then what don't you do? <laughs> don't hit it. Wouldn't you think it would be just like easy you know, everybody would just be like, eh, okay. Just knowing you'd think people wouldn't sin anymore. I mean, isn't it fair to say that we all know that sin is destructive to our own person? That's fair. And if that's true, then what the heck is wrong with us? Why would any sane person knowingly do something that produces chaos and misery? Why would any sane person do that? It seems self-destructive, and you know what? It is. It is. It's self-destructive. But here's the thing: and concentrate. Should we be surprised? Concentrate. Should we be surprised? Because this is true. Sin is, antith- I should say antithetical, not the antithetical. Antithetical to love. Sin is antithetical. To love. Sin is the expression that reveals a lack of love for self even. Didn't we just say it was self-destructive behavior? Okay, so if you're gonna hurt yourself, I'm gonna go out on a limb, that's not loving yourself. Is that fair? All right. So you see, sin is antithetical to love. Sin is the expression that reveals a lack of love for self even, strictly speaking. What I mean to say is that it's not very loving to hurt yourself, is it? And if we extend the reach of love in our lives, in the same way, it's not very loving to hurt others through sin, is it? No. Yet that is what sin specializes in. That is to say... It is an affront to God's love. First Corinthians thirteen four says this up here on the board: "Love is kind." Well, it's not very kind to hurt yourself or others, is it? And yet, that's what we agreed. Sin does; it's destructive. But love is kind. And so you see this antithesis, one to the other. And that's what I mean when I say sin is antithetical. Antithesis, antithetical to love. This is why Holy Scripture postures God diametrically opposed to sin. I mean, God doesn't just say, oh man, he's sinning again. No, God hates sin. God is perfect. And anything against His will is completely diametrically opposed to his will his essence even not just what he wants but him him sin is an abomination to god so sin is offensive to the very essence of god who the bible describes as being love Sin is offensive to the essence of God, who the Bible describes as actually being love. Sin stirs the base desires of the flesh to devour even others, if not self, others, Toshuka, lord over, consume. Pin down. Tashuka, have you ever seen one dog pin another? The other one that's submissive is on its back like this with its soft underbelly revealed, saying, That's it. That's what sin wants to do to you and everyone else. That's not love. Love picks a person up, love is kind. So sin stirs the base desire of the flesh to devour others, to lord over them, to trample ground where love has grown green grass and healthy spiritual fruit. If it sees a pasture in someone's life where the good Lord has planted seed and is growing green grass, sin wants to run over there and stomp on it. Like a bratty little child. And kick all the seed and stir it up. That's sin. And what used to be nice and simple, nothing sweeter than a nice open plain of grass, even the smell. Simple though, right? It's one of the reasons I like golf. It's not necessary to hit a little white ball around. It's because it's a walk in the park. I just love God's creation. Nice and smooth. No, nope. let's, let's tear it up. Let's have worms, and dirt, and rocks, and boulders, and everything else, and let's make it complicated. Go to Galatians 5.14. Galatians 5.14. Remember the question on the board, why all the complexity and chaos? Well, should be kind of obvious, but we're going to do the work nonetheless, so you're convinced. But the Bible says that love is kind and that sin opposes it and therefore sin must be violent and it is violent. Galatians 5.14 For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement you shall love your neighbor as yourself but if you bite and devour one another take care that you are not consumed by one another. Well that would be sin of course. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh, the sinful flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, diametric opposition. I just use that language with you, but that's what's going on here. That's what Paul is saying. These things are diametrically opposed. The flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please." I mean, you come to a class like this, some of you have already been like, yeah, yeah, I'm a, I want to do this stuff. I, I, I really want to do this stuff because I'm just a miserable crank and I just need to get on with my life and I need to. Uh huh. Mm hmm. Let's press on. So now that we can all agree to the nature of sin, it's destructive, it's violent, it devours even. Shuka. Let's get back to the question again. Why all the complexity and chaos? Well, for starters, as a function of sanctification itself, which is God's will, we learned earlier in our lesson that God may want the process of deliverance to take time. So it's not just a one-to-one, one variable. Fix this one variable in your life and all magic's going to happen. You're going to be super sanctified tomorrow, whatever that means do not work that way. There's a lot of elements in life itself. And so one of the things that we've been drawing out of our lessons, and I mentioned it earlier, is that God may want the process of deliverance to take time. I don't think there's anybody in here at this juncture that says, I don't really understand the nature of sin against God and his essence. I don't, I think everybody in here would agree that sin is destructive. And then I also think that everyone in here would agree that we all still sin, which is like this weird paradox. But the Bible tells us that God's the one who apportions a measure of faith. God's the one who delivers us. God's the one with the power only to sanctify us from such ridiculousness. And so as we're asking this question, I guess the relief valve is knowing that this takes time. So we're not overwhelmed and, you know, do what Satan wants us to do and quit. So we learned earlier that God may want the process of deliverance to take a while. Is it fair to conclude the following in your life then? Up here on the board. You know, why God waits? If God decided to deliver us immediately from whatever self-inflicted pain we endure, we might never learn our lesson. How about that? Because obviously, let's face it, obviously... The word doesn't work by itself. There's got to be some proving ground. There's got to be some actual suffering. Because God only knows, you already saw the scripture. God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, he shall also reap. Does everybody know that? Everybody knows that, right? So what are you doing sinning then? Why did that not deliver you? You know exactly why. Because it takes time, and the flesh is stubborn and arrogant and all that good stuff. If God really wanted to, I guess He could. But you might never learn your lesson. So I was reflecting on this. Even with the suffering that comes with sinning, we still sin. Can you imagine, now just imagine, just for a brief moment, as a sidebar, can you imagine if there were no suffering associated with sinning? Everyone in here should be like, oh, I would probably self-destruct. Seriously. If there was no suffering, choose your poison. Choose it. If there was no suffering with opposing the will of God, and make it practical if you want. We would probably, if we didn't kill each other, Because remember, then there would be no, you know, there would be no repercussion even for what? Murder? Slapping each other around? You you get what I'm getting at? Society would explode, you would implode, it would be a total mess. So imagine if there, just for a moment, there were no suffering associated with sinning, that is to say that there would be no physical, emotional, or spiritual angst or even remorse, which would mean there would be no contrition. And therefore, no repentance. Well, now we're getting somewhere. And if that were the case, who would ever seek the Lord for redemption, for salvation even? Imagine for a moment if the following weren't true. Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever man sows, this he will also reap. What if that got taken right out of Holy Scripture? and everything that pointed to it. That there were no consequences. What would this world be like if this were not true? It's hard to imagine mankind wouldn't have imploded by now. So I say up here on the board, thank God for consequences. Thank God we have a loving Father, because a loving Father, as Holy Scripture says, disciplines his child. Why? So that we learn. Because we're thick-headed. So thank God for consequences. And if you're a parent and there are no consequences in your household, shame on you. That's a lack of love. So says Holy Scripture. Thank God for consequences. So on the one hand, we know that there are consequences to sinning. And yet, we also relate to Paul who wrote this up here in the board. Romans 7, 19-20. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. So we know, but yet we still do. We know if we stick our finger in a light socket, it's probably going to hurt, right? But we do it all the time. And then we're rolling on the ground. how How did I get in this situation? You stuck your finger in the socket, dummy. Stop calling everybody else for sympathy. Just stop sticking your finger where it's in your socket. I almost said where it doesn't belong, but you guys are way too creative on a Sunday morning, even. You don't fool me with your oh it's too early. As soon as I say stuff like that, all of a sudden the gears are like oh, Yeah. Right? Right? No coarse jesting even in here <clears throat> our hope lies in God's ability to convict our good consciences it's the only hope we have is by the grace of God somehow he'll sanctify us that at some point we'll have enough faith to realize that the lifestyle of the sin that we've chosen isn't going to pay off is it the it's no good at some point we'll have enough faith to stop that thing And so our hope lies in God's ability to convict our good consciences, just like he is doing right now through this wonderful message. In part, he's ensuring that we don't ever place... I need you to concentrate on this one. In part, he's ensuring that we don't ever place the blame for dysfunction and misery in our lives on anything or anyone else other than sin itself. And you own your sin, okay? So there's a personal accountability there too. But what he doesn't want you to do is place the blame of whatever's dysfunctional or what have you in your life on anything or anyone else other than what Paul did. It's the sin in me. That's why. I'm doing the things I don't want to do, and I'm miserable in certain ways. That's why. So it's the connective tissue he's after. So he's speaking directly to some of you who are still choosing, and that is the operative word, choosing to live in dysfunction. And he wants nothing more than for you to see clearly why you are in such a hot mess again and some go like, i'm not a hot mess your arrogance just proved it to yourself denial is arrogance he wants nothing more than for you to see why you are in such a hot mess again So here's the connective tissue up here on the board. Deliverance begins with you making the connection between your sin and your misery. You have to make the connection. Stop blaming someone else's sin against you. My parents were terrible, you're 40. Join the club. Anybody here want to raise, don't even raise your hand because I'll, I'll, be, I'll just go with you and say, no, let me show you all the ways that they were not awesome. <laughs> who didn't have dysfunctional something in their home? My, one of my favorite sayings I always say to people who get, you know how like you're in a situation and someone's family explodes and you're like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And afterwards I just tell, I say, listen, the only normal family is the one you don't know. The only normal family is the one you don't know. Because as soon as you get to know them, you're like, yep, they're just as screwed up as we are. They're just as messed up as we are. Deliverance begins with you making the connection between your sin and your misery. Make the connection. If there's misery in your life, it's not because so-and-so was bad to you or this person's a pain in the butt. It's you. It's your sin. Own it. My fear as a shepherd is not that you'll ever sin again. That would be ridiculous. Jeez, I really... Father, I hope they never sin again. (laughs) That's actually comical, right? It's not my... My prayer is not... I, kind of, I pray you don't, and especially some of you in certain ways, but you know what I'm saying. My fear, though, is not that you'll ever sin again. That's a foregone conclusion. But rather, my fear is that you stop following your good conscience. That your conscience becomes, you know, dull. And stop making these critical connections in your souls. That's my fear is that you refuse what's being taught this morning to own it and say, because I sin, because I'm a sinner, I have misery. See, the world specializes in saying, because my parents were sinners, I have misery. Because my neighbor, who's a jackass, if you only knew him, because of him or her, I have misery. Uh Uh-uh. It's because of my spouse. That's why I'm miserable. No. Own it. Own it. Then you have a place to start. So that's my fear as a shepherd. Is that you just, you don't want to make the connective tissue in your soul. That you reject it and reject it and reject it. It's one thing to sin... It's another to fail to repent of it because you refuse to call it out for what it is. Or, more subtly, I suppose, you refuse to identify it as the root cause of every bad issue in your life. If you have misery in your life in any way, it's because of sin. And some of you might be saying, yeah, but what about the guy who punched me yesterday? Well, you're supposed to forgive. And the one who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, you know what that's called? A sin. James 4, 17. Oh, man, you mean it all comes, yes, it all comes back to you. You mean I can't blame everybody else for my issues? No, you cannot. I can't act like a little child anymore when I'm 50? No, you cannot. No, you can't. You know what? You ready? Here's a a bombshell. Grow up. It's time to grow up. And the sooner you do that, the more free you'll be. And stop calling everything a disease. The disease is sin. Every disease, physical, emotional, or spiritual, is a result of sin. Every disease. So just go and call it sin. Call it what it is. As long as you reject the Spirit's convicting ministry, choosing to continue in a lifestyle of sin, the longer you remain undelivered. There was one passage that we looked at that speaks directly to this. Go to 2 Corinthians 7.10. 2 Corinthians 7.10. God always gives you a way out. Always gives you a means of deliverance. And He never gives you more than you can handle. So says Holy Scripture. 2 Corinthians 7.10 For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation or deliverance. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Uh, I'll give you the Amplified again up here in the board. 2 Corinthians 7.10 and the Amplified. For godly sorrow that is in accord with the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But worldly sorrow, the hopeless sorrow of those who do not believe, produces death. Godly sorrow up here in the board. This is the grief that enters a person's life when they sin. It occurs when this person realizes their opposition to God, and so they repent. As compared to a worldly sorrow, appear in the board, this is remorse that does not lead to true repentance, a.k.a. attrition versus contrition, because God revives the heart of the contrite, Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen. This produces bitterness and despair, elements of the sphere of death, which is Satan's world system, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Again, verse 10 reads, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. What we learned, I mean, we might translate that into a person that views sin even the wrong way. All they're really afraid of is the penalty of sin. That's not a contrite heart. That's not a person who is morally affected. They're just worried about getting in trouble. I was just, I was just reading, um, I think it's Luke 15 or 16, um, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Abraham's bosom, that whole thing. Remember, the rich man's like, hey, send Lazarus over here. Nope. Well, then send him back to my brothers so that they don't suffer like me. There was no moral argument. It was like, can you just make sure that they don't receive this same penalty? He still was missing it. Anyways, that's worldly grief. Worldly grief is, geez, I just hope I don't get in trouble. What about Galatians 6-7 then? God is not mocked. Anyways, I know I'm, throwing a lot at you, but it's really very simple. What we learned on Thursday from all of this is that a person whose life is complex and chaotic is the same one who refuses to repent, who rejects messages from God like this one. Let me say it again while Carol adjusts herself. What we learned on Thursday from all of this is that a person whose life is complex and chaotic is the same one who refuses to repent, who rejects messages from God like this one, implying that the power of sin, not the penalty, for that has been taken care of at the cross, the power of sin has a very strong grip on them. I'm refusing what's coming from the pulpit. Why? Because I'm stuck, you see. And Tammy and I were talking about this this morning, Sin blinds. There are people that are blind. And you ever talk to somebody and say, Hey, um, isn't it obvious? Like, I mean, do you see what I see? I mean, last time I checked, this is Burt's Spee's lip balm. Nope. No, it's not. Nope. Wow. That's what it's like. Dealing with a person who refuses... A person who's completely blinded. They say, I can't see it. They're like this. I don't see it. I see something, yeah. I'll agree that it's a yellow stick of something, but because I'm hard of sight seeing, I can't read Bert's Bees. So I was thinking about this. A person who thinks wrongly about sin is usually focused on the penalty of it. A person who thinks wrongly about sin is usually focused only on the penalty of it. This is why so many religious folks in our area are so very lost when it comes to sin. You see, sin to them is not a moral issue, it's an intellectual one. And therefore, any treatment of it in terms of eternal life or so called heaven is an intellectual pursuit. Well, I got to go to church on Sundays. Uh-huh. I gotta do my, you know, I gotta rub the rosary. Uh Uh-huh. I gotta say my 25 Hail Marys. Uh huh. I gotta make sure I do all these cartwheels down the aisle. Uh huh. Check, 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 check. So that I can do all that and go home and live in sin. That's a person who's focused on the penalty of it. I just need to check these things off so I don't get the penalty. This is why so many religious folks are so very lost. They are in fear of the penalty, not the power or the presence of sin. In fact, Catholicism is famous for establishing fear as the primary reason for seeking a trip to heaven. It's Completely fear-based. People in such religions seek God purely out of fear rather than repentance that leads to life. To borrow from Acts 11.18. The Bible, listen, the Bible never says that fear of anything leads to life. In fact, fear is tied to death, not life. And as the Apostle John wrote, there is no fear in love. Go to 1 John 4.18. 1 John 4.18. There is no fear in love. 1 John 4, 18. I hope you see the distinctions here. These are diametrically opposed things. There is no fear in love. I didn't write that. It's pretty hard stated fact, isn't it? There is no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected matured in love so i was thinking about this and you got to, to concentrate there's a lot of points of concentration in this one. it's a fantastic lesson just chock full of principles and maybe that's why he has it on a long weekend some of you be like <laughs> the party starts after church dude I'll probably be hung over until noontime. <laughs> that was my hiccup. <laughs> Everybody's got plans, don't they? Everyone has plans. Oh, I'm gonna party. I got the day off tomorrow. Well, why don't you use it for this stuff? Just saying. I mean I'm just throwing it, just throwing it out there. Ever notice how people who live dysfunctional chaotic lives are always in fear of something big? Ever notice how people who live dysfunctional chaotic lives are always in fear of something big? Why is everybody twitching? Strike a nerve, did I? Ever notice How people who live dysfunctional, chaotic lives are always living in fear. I'll leave it at that. But there is no fear in love. And to the degree you're living a sinful lifestyle, you're missing out on love. Do I need to make the whole connection for you? A person who abides in fear ought to pray to God about their very salvation. Now that strikes a deep nerve. And it ought to. A person who abides in fear ought to pray to God about their very salvation. For fear is not from God and a lifestyle of fear is indicative of an unbeliever. Not a believer who has hope in things eternal." Just food for thought. Just throwing it out there, not suggesting anybody in here has that problem. Just throwing it out there. The point the Spirit's making is that fear and love have no fellowship with one another. Up here on the board, 2 Corinthians 6, 14, Part B. What fellowship has light with darkness? None. It's a rhetorical question. And you know what that, right before that, Part A. What are you doing hanging around with unbelievers? What are you doing? There is no excuse. Ladies and gentlemen, especially you single people, cut it out. If you want to propagate misery in your life, do I have to say it? Go seek company with unbelievers. God forbid you do it romantically. Now you're really asking for it. And remember, God is not mocked. Hmm. What fellowship has light with darkness? Therefore, if you're experiencing fear, some portion of God's love is being overlooked, or shall we say missed even, whatever, however you'd like to describe it. Because these are mutually exclusive. Do you understand? Fear and love. There is no fear and love. And so if you think of them just as like spheres, they don't overlap. A person who lives in fear may not even possess God's love yet. Hence my previous point about unbelief. But for we believers, we must keep coming back to the question at hand. Why all the complexity and chaos? This is the answer. This is what we're answering here, right? I hope you see it. He's just laying it out on the table. He's saying this is it. It's sin. It's always been sin. And I just need you to make the connective tissue in your soul. You're living a lifestyle of sin, therefore I'm not mocked. You are miserable. You're doing this, therefore this happens. And God's, you know, God's pretty smart, right? He may not try to correct you in that area necessarily. He may give you the truth and you can ignore it. But maybe in another area of your life you're you're being cursed. Maybe in another area of your life you're being cursed. Maybe the curse comes in a variety of shades and formats. For example, I'm a girl. Right. I'm 17 years old. I'm, you know, I'm in high school. No, 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 no. Oh, he's so cute. Sweetheart, he's an unbeliever. I don't care. I think I'm going to date him. Uh, that's not even good either for your soul. Surefire way. I don't care. God is not marked. Next thing you know, I don't have any more time for church. I don't have any more time for fellowship. I can't clean up. I can't donate. I'm just a mess. I'm a hot mess. I don't know how it happened. It's As high as I can go. Sorry. Without doing something physical that I don't want to do. Do you know what I'm getting at? It's like a perfect example. God may not and then all of a sudden now you start suffering because now you're missing all these beautiful pearls of wisdom coming from the pulpit. And you're missing them all. And you're cursed. You realize when you sin, you become your own judgment before God? God now has a very basis for saying, that's why you're judged. That's why my son had to die for you, you moron. That's why you're miserable. You're your own judgment upon yourself. You've proven I've given you the the wisdom, and you've rejected it. And I told you I would never be mocked. And you thought I was kidding? Why all the complexity and chaos? Well, let's continue in case it hasn't sunk in yet. On Thursday, we looked at several passages and compiled the following list of truths up here on the board. God is immutable. Man's flesh is antagonistic to God. Man's sin creates chaos in his own life. God's desire is sanctification and peace. So these are diametrically opposed. But we also know sanctification takes time. And that's why even a guy, like even after I give you that funny example about the, the little girl and this kind of thing, I get it. I'm not judging that person. I'm not. I'm not giving them an excuse, but I'm not judging them either because we've all been there, right? Or oh, so soon have we forgotten with highfalutin uh, spiritual giants now, Right? Sanctification takes time. Now, back to the question. Why the complexity and chaos? Up here on the board. How about this? God is the source of peace, not confusion. Complexity is the result of man's sin producing worldly fruit, including worldly sorrow. You know, that kind that doesn't lead to godly repentance. As sin compounds, complexity increases. However, Godly sorrow leads to repentance that saves and delivers towards simplicity. For example, 2 Corinthians 11:3. Paul's fear was that people were blinded to the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And I said this on Thursday, I'll say it again. Think about simplicity as a figurative destination that we are heading towards. Life is chaotic. We're born into chaos. We have a, a, a flesh, a sinful flesh that does nothing really more than complicate it and make it worse. Because then we integrate, right? We into our flesh wants nothing more than to integrate into the world system, which is disgusting and gross and complex and all the above. And he says, "Oh, you know, he's, the flesh is licking its chops." And meanwhile, God's saying, "I want to sanctify you. I want you to give you. I want to give you one solution to the problem. It's my Son." And then I want you to head with him. I want you to follow him. I know you're going to fall down, but just get back up. I know, I'm going to give you all the grace to keep going and make simplicity and devotion to him your objective, your, quote, destination. So he's going to do this number. And as most of you will attest in here that have been growing, you know that your life is, beginning, is becoming simpler and simpler. Fair enough, DJ? DJ? Amen. And I don't mean to pick him, I just preempted him. Because normally if I say it, he goes, yeah. (laughs) I just want to save you a little breath, that's all. All The more you grow up in Jesus Christ, the simpler life gets. It's only when you start sinning again, when you veer off, that things start opening up again. The chasm of chaos, if you would, starts opening up again. And that's what the world wants to do. Veer you off. Jesus Christ said, I am the way. Don't forget it. I'm the way. You follow me. You just keep it simple. You devote yourself to me. And I promise you blessings. My peace I give to you. But if you're going to reject me at every turn. And you're going to reject my under shepherd. The one who's talking to you right now. Just remember that. My Father in heaven is not mocked. So think of simplicity as a destination that we're heading towards, like a soldier commanded to march towards a destination that spells victory. And just knowing that we're marching in the right direction, according to our spiritual compass, our conscience, is a blessing in of itself. Even Paul said, I, I know that I haven't arrived yet. He said that. But I forget what lies behind, I press on to what lies ahead. Paul said that. So we don't always have a full picture of the hill, the mountain, the, the destination. We just put one foot in front of the other. And let God sanctify us. Because that's His will. Knowing God and having more and more faith in Him is a primary element of our sanctification. Not only does He sanctify us, but our knowledge of said activity adds to sanctification itself. There t- Alright, anybody not want to raise their hand um, looking back five years? You could probably say to yourself right now, there's a dozen things you could think of that God sanctified you in. At the time, you didn't know. It's 2020 in hindsight. But right now is that time in the future again. And he's sanctifying you right now. And you don't see it all yet. And he's working things out. And five years from now, you look back and go, I remember when Pastor Ed said that. And I was like, I I, I don't see it. But now I do. That's what it means, one foot in front of the other. Faith that he's going to sanctify you even when you don't know it. So just knowing that He's doing good in your life, just knowing that He's a God of His Word, Philippians 1.6, He'll complete a good thing He started in you in salva- at salvation. Knowing those things, that is part of sanctification itself. Because does that not bring peace in your life? You bet. And that's what it's meant to do. Will you just relax? You don't have to try so hard to be religious you got to be humble. Do you understand? That's a moral issue, not an intellectual one. That's a, that's a heart issue, if you would. Not an intellectual one. The intellect always veers off and gets on a works program. The humble person says, I don't even know what you're doing here. And he says, that's okay. One foot in front of the other. Just follow My son, just follow the Lord Jesus Christ, and I will sanctify you. So we have found our answer in a multitude of ways to the question, why the complexity and chaos? But the answer is pretty simple. It's man's sinfulness. It's man's sinfulness. And this takes us back to the dawn of mankind, all the way back to the garden, to the fall even. This is a good perspective. I loved what came out on Thursday evening up here on the board. Before the fall, before the fall, while this battlefield called life is like a boiling cauldron of chaos and confusion, what we must understand is that it was never like that in the Garden of Eden before the fall. It wasn't until the serpent deceived Adam and Eve that complexity, confusion, and chaos entered the scene. That's a wonderful perspective, isn't it? Before the fall, none of this even... Look, this is a huge point that you really need to chew on on your day off tomorrow. So instead of chewing on the end of a bottle cap, chew on this. I'm not saying everybody does that. Just trying to make Big Jim laugh. Thank you, Jim. A primary fruit of sin is confusion. Can we agree that confusion disrupts peace? I mean, <laughs> when's the last time you went in a boat? And you were in the high seas and said, It's so peaceful out here. <laughs> <laughs> You're holding off a deal life, right? When someone says it's so peaceful out here, what are they thinking of? Like Lake Placid, maybe? There's a reason placid. You know know that? You know that in the morning? It's just perfect. It's just a little fog above the water and everything's quiet. That's peaceful. If all of a sudden there's 10 foot waves it went from peaceful to not so peaceful. So primary fruit of sin is confusion, a loss of perfect peace. A confused person is never totally at peace. The perfect example of this is back in the garden. Up here on the board, after the fall... When we ask the fundamental question, why the complexity and chaos, we must go back to the garden where perfect peace was destroyed by sin. Where perfect peace was destroyed by sin. Think of it this way. Before the fall, mankind's dictionary, if he had one, he didn't have one, I know, but you know what I mean. Before the fall, mankind's dictionary didn't even contain words like confusion or chaos. You have to think that way. I know it's hard because we're, it's really hard because you have to almost have an out-of-body experience to imagine that confusion and chaos don't even exist. There's not even a definition for them. That even makes it more poignant, doesn't it? There's not even a definition. It's not like, oh, I know it exists, but I've never experienced it. No, D- there's not even a definition for it. It's, it's void. There is no such thing as any confusion or any chaos or any misery or any of. It. Concentrate up here on the board. Before the fall, if the world had a dictionary, the following would not be present in it, not even present. Wouldn't even now. Stop looking. Stop it. You know why it wouldn't be in a dictionary, Melissa? You were looking, <laughs> right? You know why there would be no reason for it. That's the whole point. It's not you know oh they wouldn't be there because no one ever expected. No, these things didn't exist. If that makes sense, they didn't exist. So you wouldn't need a definition. It's like the internet before the internet. 50 years ago, there was no internet. Oh, I say 300 years ago, you said, oh, it's on the internet. <laughs> what? No, it, it wasn't required. It wasn't, a de- def- it wasn't a definition because it didn't exist. Do you understand? You'd be, you'd be like, what the heck is he talking about? That's the same thing. These things didn't even, they, they conceptually didn't even exist. Maybe in God, God knows, but, you know. Fear, anxiety, confusion, chaos, misunderstanding. Forgiveness, no need for it. Uh, embarrassment, how about that one? What was one of the first things the Bible says? They knew they were naked. Now I'm embarrassed. That didn't exist. Oh, crap, now we got to put it in the dictionary. Adam, are they over here with a hammer and chisel? I'm just kidding. They didn't do that either. You know what I'm saying? Right? Embarrassed. Now we got to put in embarrassed. Now we got to put in insecurity. Call Webster. Webster was the little guy. <laughs> Hardly talked about. Right? But he, was, he had glasses and the engineer's hat A pocket protector. And then he went, oh man, i got to do a lot of work. I'm going to be working weekends. Embarrassment, insecurity, suffering. You know what I'm getting at? Sin changed all of it. From perfect peace to chaos. And confusion. Now all of a sudden, you imagine how confused Adam and Eve were? Hey, hey, why am I confused about my body? Are you body shaming me right now with those eyes? I see you looking at me funny. Why the confusion? I'm confused. Do you understand what I'm getting at? That's that's what happened when sin came on the scene. Everything changed. And as for the sake of perspective, remember, God is never fearful. Anxious, confused, chaotic, misunderstanding, embarrassed, insecure, etc. Why? Because God has never sinned. So the answer to our question, why the complexity in chaos? The simple answer is sin. And before we close, um, let me just plug on a little bit more. We ended on Thursday with some elevated thinking. And I really do want you to bring this home and think about the way we started class. Owning the sin in your life. And understanding if there's any misery or discomfort or malcontent, it's because there's sin in your life. Your life! Stop blaming the president and his ridiculous tweets. Stop <laughs> blaming everybody, right, for your misery. Last time I checked, Galatians 5.1 said it was for freedom that Christ set you free. Do not be in bondage again to the yoke of slavery. Those are not vapid words. Those are words to live by. So stop blaming everybody else. Just call a sin a sin. Say, this, yeah, this is why i am I got misery in my life. And, and knowing this up here on the board, sin is the most destructive force in the universe. It took a perfectly peaceful situation in the garden and blew it up. And it's so gross, right? Because it's like if it was a, you know, like a comic frame with only two frames, you'd see the serpent coming in, and then you'd see him slithering away, like it'd be like an atomic bomb. And Adam and Eve are looking at each other like, oh man, what would we just do? And he's slithering away with a smile on his face. Do you know what I'm getting at? It's like that. But they chose. So technically you can't even blame the serpent because they knew better and they chose just like you know better and you can't blame Satan for you and your problems so sin is the most destructive force in the universe I guess I'll end this way it is the reason for the enmity between the holy God of the universe and his creatures it's the reason the earth still moans awaiting deliverance for itself it's the reason why any chaos at all exists for in heaven There is perfect synchronicity, perfect peace, and therefore perfect love. And so we might rightly conclude that sin is the great robber of love. For when we sin, we are estranged in the sphere of love experientially. When we sin, we are thinking as Satan thinks, deceptively. And deception, as we've learned is fruit of unrighteousness, of sin itself. And to be clear, we are not talking about the act of sin, but sin itself, which by definition means to miss the mark. And as the Spirit alluded to last week, when this happens, we lose sight of the great anchoring facet of the essence of God Himself which is love up here on the board. 1 John 4:17 and 19 in the message, God is love. When we take up permanent residence in a life of love, we live in God and God lives in us. This way, love has the run of the house, becomes at home and mature in us so that we are free of worry on judgment day. Our standing in the world is identical with Christ. And we just saw this. There is no room in love, for fear, well-formed love banishes fear, since fear is crippling, a fearful life, fear of death, fear of judgment, is one not yet fully formed in love. We, though, are going to love, love and be loved. First we were loved, now we love. He loved us first. I think I'll end there, and I just want to say again, I want to challenge you all this weekend, and do not forget the, uh, the nature of this morning's message and the timing of it. Most of you have some time off this weekend, maybe tomorrow. Use that time. And it's going to take you time. I'm telling you, it's going to take you time. These lessons do not just magically pop into my head. Do you understand? He has to develop these things in me first. And I'm telling you, it takes time. I'm sharing with you. What he reveals to me in an hour, an hour and 10 minutes. But I'm telling you, like I've used to draw these things out. It's like one of those just add water pills, right? The lesson the, the true lesson is this big. And he says, you only got an hour. So I turn the heat on a thousand and I dehydrate it until it's into a little capsule void of any hydration. And it's this big, right? And then it's the just-add water. Water from the Word. Let the Spirit water these lessons. Take the time with the lessons. God causes the growth. Take the lesson, let Him water it, and let it come out to this big again in your life. And then you'll have your own convictions and your own wisdom in your own love. Amen? Well, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for the privilege of studying your word here this morning. We just ask for your blessings as, a, as we take these things out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.